Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. This week for Spirit in Action, we'll be continuing with last week's topic, War Tax Resistance, with a visit with two more activists. To recap, last week we spoke with Lincoln Rice, staff person for NWTRCC, the acronym for the National War Tax Resistance Coordinating Committee, often pronounced NUTRIC, from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and with Sue Barnard over in Oregon about some of the actions they were part of around April 15th, Tax Day, maybe better called War Tax Day 2019. Today, we'll spend time with Larry Bassett, an inspirational curmudgeon of a pacifist over in Virginia. But first, we're headed to San Diego, California, to talk with Ann Barron, doing peacework in oh so many ways, police watching and with the Peace Resource Center of San Diego and in organizing with the Poor People's Campaign in California. We've got Ann Barron on the phone from San Diego. And thank you for taking time out of a busy day to be with me here today for Spirit in Action. Thank you, Mark, for talking with me. So what would you be doing if you weren't talking to me in this busy day? What were you doing? Uh, gardening. I have a ton of mushroom compost that I'm pouring into the soil in the backyard. We actually live in a very small lot, and about 100 feet from my house there's a community garden, so I would be gardening. Well, the reason I'm talking to you, Anne, is because I found out through the National War Tax Resistance Coordinating Committee that you were part of actions down in San Diego on Tax Day 2019, that you were active, I understand, with the Poor People's Campaign. Fill me in a little bit on what happened down in San Diego. So this happened on April 13th. It was the last day of the Poor People's Campaign, and it was now National Poor People's Campaign in about 35 different states were doing statewide tours called the Truth and Poverty Bus Tour. It was to listen to the real stories, to hear the truth, to counter the lies that were being fed by the federal government, by invested interests who really are trying to create a society that promotes their well-being at the expense of everyone else's. This was a tour, and in California, you know, we're pretty long. We're like a 1,000 miles long, so our state tour took over a week. They started up at the northern border. There was a tribe there, the Yurok tribe, and heard their narratives and their stories and their experiences, and then they came down the state, stopping at various places, Sacramento, which is our capital. They had a stop there and, and listened to a lot of stories of people who were living unhoused on the streets and how they ended up on the streets. Stopped in Fresno, and Fresno is sort of the cattle capital of the United States, if not the world. And there they had the state convergence. It was the statewide hearing and really hearing from the stories of the workers in the different plants and the cattle workers. 
about what their stories are and also collecting stories from around the state. And then they ended up finally in San Diego. They went as far south as they could go. So we actually went to San Isidro, which is the farthest most part of the county of San Diego. It's right up against the border. Literally, you go to San Isidro and there's the border wall. They went all the way as far south as they could and they got stopped by this ugly wall. Actually, there's now three walls. Boom, boom, boom. We had a hearing, a local civic center that was run by Casa Familiar that does a lot of local services, does a lot of work around immigrant rights, housing rights, food rights, you know, all these things that we consider human rights. And so this organization hosted our hearing, and it was live-streamed, and I can actually send you the link. I'll include it online with my program so people can just come to NordenSpiritRadio.org, and with this program, there'll be a link to those hearings. I started to watch them myself. Yeah, and it was so interesting. San Diego, is just, it's a highly militarized town, and it's chock-a-block with... I want to say thousands, if definitely hundreds, of these grassroots organizations and groups that are working to create positive change in their neighborhoods. And so they came out and they spoke, and we had people from All of Us or None, which does work around helping people coming out of the prison system. You know, it's basically looking at how slavery is encapsulated in our penal code and continues after people are supposedly released after they've done their time, but they're still penalized. So all of us or none talked about the experiences of being in the prison. We had people over profits, San Diego, which was talking about the mass incarceration and how that's profit-driven, making money for private systems. We also had solutions. I mean, the cool thing about our hearing was, you know, we had the problems, but we also provided community solutions. Like, there is a group called the D.D. McClure Community Bail Fund, and they are bailing out black and brown mothers for Mother's Day this year. And if that's successful, they're actually going to start bailing out dads and then they'll start bailing out homeless people because the bail system in San Diego is the most oppressive, most expensive, especially if you're black or brown. It's horrendous. You could end up, even for a misdemeanor, you could get a bail as high as $25,000. One speaker, Francisco Mendoza, actually grew up and played at that civic center, and he was talking about how the civic center was a sanctuary from the local police. So that was a nice kind of homecoming. So we had some of the steering committee. The Poor People's Campaign has a steering committee for uh, the different states. There's a national steering committee, which is led by Dr. Barber and also Dr. Theo Harris. So a man and a woman, and they've been leading this sort of poor people's campaign, which is based on the Martin Luther King poor people's campaign, you know, when he was assassinated. So that ended, but it didn't end. It was a way of gathering all these narratives, and then they'll create a truth-driven narrative to counter what they call a moral narrative to counter the immoral narrative that were sold every day. It was exciting. I worked heavily on that. That was one of my passions, and so I was directly involved in the planning and getting folks there. Um, And then I also did my war tax redirection. So I only owed about $600 in taxes this year um, because I live pretty simply. 
So my part of the speech was I said, I've come here to pay my taxes. So I just gave those taxes instead of giving it to the federal government. I gave it directly to the human services that were doing human good. And that was I gave it to the black and brown mama bailout. And I also gave it to the poor people's campaign. That was this year. I have the letter here, too. I wrote every year I write a letter to the IRS telling them I've paid my taxes. I just didn't pay them to the federal government. Do you have it right in front of you? If you do, would you read it? Oh, sure. Dear IRS, this year again, I redirect my federal taxes to community need rather than have my money spent on disastrous, inhumane, and illegal wars. I have paid my state taxes and my local taxes. Today I'm paying my 2018 federal taxes directly to two groups that will use my taxes to support families in crisis. The national emergency has been caused by U.S. policy violence that subjugates, denigrates, and oppresses my sisters and brothers through systemic racism and sexism to feed corporate greed. So I thank you, the Poor People's Campaign and the D.D. McClure Community Bail Fund for their vision and community support work. And I know that my taxes will be used by them in support of life, not death. So there's more of it, but that's basically it. And so you've done this for a number of years. I read that you started being a war tax resistor back in 2010. You write a letter, you give your money away somewhere else, and then what happens? Because most of the people listening to this say, well, that's all very well, but they're going to come and get their taxes anyhow, right? Yes, that's their goal is to get the taxes. What's that phrase? The only thing in life uncertain is death, death and taxes. taxes. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I always, I won't call it a golden, but it's kind of like the upside of the Trump tax disaster, and it was a tax disaster. But the upside is he defunded IRS. So when I first started doing this, of course, it's terrifying dealing with the IRS because they have so much so-called power. I mean, there's really very little oversight over the IRS. And you learn that as you get more and more into this war tax resistance. But, you know, you get your first letters, and those letters really are form letters. You start to recognize them. They're basically computer-generated form letters, and you fill them out. It's when you start accruing high amount of owed taxes and the penalties and the fees, and it's the penalties and the fees that start adding up. So at some point, you will probably trigger an audit or something like that. So people do war tax resistance in many different ways. I do it as a conscientious objector, so I'm prepared as much as anyone can be prepared for the consequences of that. Like many people I've been learning from, I am just determined that they are not going to get that money and use it towards death. And I think of it as, as reparations for all the years before that. It never even occurred to me that I could resist paying my taxes. And when I met up with, at that time it was Ruth Ben, who was the sort of coordinator for Nutrick, and I, I met up with her in her office in New York City. And it just blew my mind that, yes, there are people doing this. There's a support group. There's a network. There are people who understand what all these letters meant. So that helps. You get those letters. So I've been consciously living simply also. That's one way I do it. There are other people I know that consciously make money so that they can use this as a tool of protest. Um, that's very brave, I think, and courageous. I haven't got anything more than that yet, than the letters. At some point, I'll get someone knocking on my door, but it won't be, it won't be the next two years. They just don't have the personnel right now.
So let's just be clear. You've been doing this since 2010. And of course, there's the fear when you first imagine they're going to come break down your door and grab you and they're going to take your car and your bed and your hamster and everything. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's what the fear is, right? Yes, because that's what they did in the 60s, right? They were very aggressive and the 70s. And so you've been doing this for nine, maybe 10 years. Still, no one's come knocked on your door. On my door, no. And others who've been doing it longer than me, like you've been doing it since 1982, what's, what's been your experience? They sometimes just send you notices, notices. They look for any time where they've got some money of mine in a place that they can grab it. That's what they attempt to do. Of course, I used all the legal means back in the 1980s, for instance. I decided one good thing I could do is to install as much solar as I could everywhere, get a 40% tax credit, which meant that I actually ended up with negative tax. And so they couldn't get anything for those several years I was doing that. So those are their legal ways that you try and do good in the world. And if you're self-employed, which I became my own business owner when I moved up to Eau Claire 30 years ago, then they send the notice to me telling me to withhold money from my paycheck. And it's like, uh, no, I don't think so. Go away. <laughs> And then they look for bank accounts that you have and all that kind of thing. There's many things that they attempt to do over the years. And sometimes at a, a certain moment, they'll catch you and sometimes they won't. Now, you're employed by someone else. Don't they just take it for, you know, they send a levy, what most people think garnish. A levy is the proper term to get money from your paycheck. They do. It takes them a while to track that down. Because I can, I have a lot of freedom right now. Um, I'm 60 years old. I don't really have a whole lot of expenses. So I don't have a full-time job. I have a couple of part-time jobs. One is self-employed, and then one is really just a small stipend that I get. And so they'll take them about two to three years to find that. So then, yes, they can take it out of your paycheck. But they can only take so much. They can't take your whole paycheck. And my paycheck is tiny anyways. By design. <laughs> it is. I, I, it's right. And then, again, like you, I'm self-employed. So that, you know, I just pay myself out of, and then I file my taxes. And it's interesting. I'm always curious. Self-employed, you do have to pay your own Social Security and Medicare taxes. And I send those taxes in because I believe in those, and those are not part of the federal budget. Those are separate. I'm curious to see if they'll ever take that and use that and pay it towards the taxes I do owe them, but they haven't done that yet. Mm-hmm. So I love these our gatherings. We're actually having one next weekend. We're all gathering in D.C. because you hear of all these stories and these tactics, like David Gross, who's a war tax resistor living in California, wrote a book called 99 Tactics to Defund War, and they're all legal. You know, things that you can do legally that just like you did to reduce your war taxes that you have to pay. But it's not just uh, limiting your taxes. It's how can I redirect my money to something I think is worthwhile? If I make a donation to this group and I get a tax credit for it, and tax credits are different than tax deductions. People who don't know should learn about that. But if I can support fighting against global warming and I can make that budgetary decision myself, and I can prevent the U.S. government from taking my taxes for military, well, gee, that maybe is a way I can live up to my priorities, my desire to do good in the world. 
again, Anne and folks, we are speaking with Anne Barron. She's in San Diego, California, and she's a war tax resistor. I found out about you, by the way, you know, through Lincoln Rice, who's the national coordinator for the National War Tax Resistance Coordinating Committee. These links are on NordenSpiritRadio.org, folks. And so you can find examples of Anne speaking and Lincoln and Sue Barnard and all these other people who are part of this selection of people across the country who are trying to make a difference, live morally, I guess, is one of the issues. I don't want to put words in your mouth, though, however, Anne. What was the thing that got you to the point in 2010 that you were ready to be a war tax resistor? I mean, it's not just things you like, but it has something to do with the worldview, I take it. Right. And I think part of it, you know, there was a convergence of just life changes that were happening. I was going through a divorce. My sister was a tax resistor and understood a lot of just how the system was put in play in ways that I had never really understood. So she was one of my educators. And then just having been a teacher, I was a teacher and and just seeing firsthand, it's sort of like the school, the prison, or school, the military pipeline, because I was working in underserved communities in New Jersey. It was just depressing. I felt powerless. So uh, when I started to hear about war tax resistance, and I don't call it resistance anymore, I call it redirection, because it made sense to me right from the beginning that in addition to withholding those taxes, I have to redirect them, because I believe in taxes. I always have. I think we are undertaxed. I think our gasoline is undertaxed. But the national priorities, you know, and you start to see that pie chart. You know, the War Resisters League puts out this amazing pie chart every year, and you can just see the budget priorities. It's just terrifying. And then Dad was military. He served in Nam, and when he came back, I was eight years old when he came back, and just a very different man than when he left so, you know, all of these kind of confluences of events and then working heavily in the anti-war movement and really beginning to understand that the anti-war movement was problematic because the language we were using, it needs to be pro-peace. You're always working against something. It's exhausting and just that kind of negativity in the language doesn't uplift. It makes you angry and then becomes exhausting. So that's kind of been the arc of my thinking. My thinking changes every year, just as you learn more and talk more with people. One of the things I noted on the NUTREC, the National War Tax Resistance Coordinating Committee website, is that you are also active as a cop watcher. <laughs> yeah. That's not like being a girl watcher, is it? It's just because you like their physiques, no? No. Tell me about cop watching. It's springing up in communities around the country. You know, it was really made present by the Black Panther movement that we are going to watch the police in our communities because they're terrorizing our communities. So in San Diego, which is heavily militarized, the police here in San Diego, part of their training takes place at Miramar, which is the Marine base. You know, it's a military base, Miramar uh, Marine Base, I think it's called. The police here really engage with the community as if we were the enemy, and that's how they're trained. So I was at a next-door town called El Cajon. There is a vigil, an ongoing vigil, for a man who was shot point-blank by police. He was having a, a mental health crisis, and within 20 seconds of the cop arriving, shot him dead. 
the community was mourning and having these vigils, and they brought in a military tank. They brought in squadrons of police in SWAT dress, and then they brought in the sharpshooters to take on, and this was a community outpouring of grief and anger, and they treated it like it was a war situation, which I think it was for them, right? So the police here really act with impunity. And we even heard stories back in the day, like in the 1970s, there was a, a street called Imperial, and still there, Imperial, but it was the place where the lumber yards were. And the police would bring usually African-American men there and beat them up and either release them or send them to jail, but severely beaten. And so we still see that happening today. We have many of those situations where a, a black or brown person is either summarily killed or somehow dies in custody. So what we do is we watch the police. We film them. And there is a group called United Against Police Terror, and they train us how to do this. And I know this happened in Ferguson after the rebellion in Ferguson, after Michael Brown was shot. And it's happening around the country. So it's an effort to prove that the police are not there to protect and serve, but oftentimes they're the aggressors. And so we've had some success in California. We have an amazing assemblywoman, Shirley Weber, who's been able to push through some police oversight at the um, state level. And so that's been helpful. But really what was driving that was people loading up onto websites and YouTube and is actual footage of how cops in the neighborhoods were actually dealing with people and mistreating them. When you spoke on the 13th for the Poor People's Campaign, was there interest in war tax resistance or actually you referred to it as war tax redirection? Mm-hmm. Did people say, hey, why haven't I done that? Now's the time. Obviously, with over 50% of our federal income tax dollar going to the military, I could make better budget decisions than that. Do you see people as being ready to expand on this and to take control of the direction of the United States? I do and I don't. It depends on the situation and who I'm talking to and what their life has been like. So if you're a black or brown person or an indigenous person, your life has been so different than many people of privilege who tend more to be white, more to be male. So the Poor People's Campaign are the most impacted people. And I feel having benefited from this white privilege, this European privilege that we've violently instituted in the United States, that it's my obligation it's to do reparation, right? So I don't ask and I wouldn't ask anyone who's heavily already impacted by the system to engage in that. What I do, and I'm not sure this is the right way to go about it, is try to challenge people who do pay taxes. And and so there is interest on their part, but the reality is it seems like just this monumental thing you have to do, and it seems like you have to understand too much and you have to deal with the IRS. So I think people have that fear And so it's really, it's actually much easier than it sounds like. And if you can go through your fear like I did, it's actually easier than you think to redirect your taxes. That's the conversation I have when I'm in places where it's middle class people who pay their taxes, who make money, 
And then, yes, there is interest, but there's also intense fear. So I feel like the more that they see people like you and me who are living in the community, and living simply, I think, probably resonates more than any of the other kind of approaches to redirecting your taxes. Well, I do think people just listening to you right now can realize that the fear doesn't have to be controlling and that fear is a big part of it. It's fear and peer pressure. You know, everybody else does it, right? By hearing that there are people choosing a different way and that we don't live in constant fear. But in any case, it doesn't need to be a controlling factor in our life. And in fact, if there's 10,000 of us or 100,000 of us doing this, they don't have the personnel to police us. And so the only way that they get away with really what are crimes against humanity is by intimidation. Yes, it's the carrot and the stick. And that's they're very good at doing that with the middle class. Have a big old stick and a big old carrot. One last thing. Did William Barber actually speak there in California? I got to hear him last summer. He spoke at the National Quaker Gathering I go to each year, the Friends General Conference Gathering. So I got to hear him speaking. He is such an inspirational person. And he is not the inspiration. He's one of a number of people, but he certainly captures really a vision that is resounding throughout this country. So did he actually appear there? Not then. He actually came out about two years ago in 2016, and it was there's a local big celebration of Martin Luther King called the People's Breakfast, and he spoke there, and I got to hear him speak. Yes, he is a great, eloquent, I'm just trying to think of the right words, because yes, he's very inspiring. He lifts you up. It's just beautiful. Well, it's my opinion that Anne Barron is also inspirational, and I really appreciate the work you do, the way you've examined your life and directed it in proper way, and that you've redirected these war taxes to actually care for the community, care for the world. It's so important, and each of us making that decision can't help but make this a better world. So I thank you for doing that, working with the Peace Resource Center, so many other ways that you're making San Diego, California, and the U.S. a better place. Thank you for joining me for Spirit in Action. Oh, thank you, Mark. And I'll be working to bring it on to Spirit in Action onto our local, we have a local radio station called KNSJ that already has one of your programs, but I think Spirit in Action would be perfect for the San Diego community. So thank you. Thank you again. And keep up the good work. You know, it's good to know I have a sister in the work down there in San Diego. Yeah, come on down. Come back. <laughs> when it gets really, really cold there, come on down. What a wonderful visit and invite from Ann Barron in San Diego. First Spirit in Action guest today on Northern Spirit Radio. Website, northernspiritradio.org. As promised, there are links on our site to a presentation Ann was part of around Tax Day 2019 and to the National War Tax Resistance Coordinating Committee website and to all of our guests for the past 14 years and much more info, along with a place for you to post a comment on the NorthernSpiritRadio.org site. You know a bit about me, but I'd really like to know you. So post and rate programs when you visit, and click that Donate button to help Northern Spirit Radio continue and thrive without needing any funding from corporations, etc. But first, support the wonderful community radio station in your area, an incredible resource plugged into the vital energies of our communities. 
Do that first, both with your wallet and your hands. There are links on NorthernSpiritRadio.org to the 41-some stations nationwide carrying our programs. Connect up with them. Also on our site, by the way, are some bonus excerpts from today's interviews, stuff that I couldn't fit in this broadcast. So remember to listen in. You'll learn a little bit more about Ann Barron and our next guest. Because right now we're going to call up a wonderful curmudgeon of a notorious war tax resistor and pacifist. And he's also the subject of a documentary on his witness, including redirecting war taxes from a recent million-dollar inheritance. Larry Bassett joins us by phone from Lynchburg, Virginia. Larry, thank you so very much for joining me today for Spirit in Action. Hi, Mark. I'm glad to be here. I'm excited to talk to you. Let's do it. Where are you from originally, and how big is your core of pacifist supporters right there in Lynchburg? (laughs) Pacifist supporters in Lynchburg. I have yet to meet another person in Lynchburg who would identify themselves as a pacifist or as certainly as a war tax resistor. So I might be a meeting of one from that point of view. I think there must be some other pacifists there. There is something called Lynchburg Indulged Meeting, which is a Quaker meeting that is in Lynchburg. So there must be at least one or two other pacifists in your area. (laughs) (laughs) But maybe you just never run into them. I don't know. I've been a fairly notable downtown personality because I have kind of a peculiar look. I have long hair, long beard. I'm that kind of weird guy downtown who hangs out but doesn't ask you for money. Since the film The Pacifist has come out, I now have more people that recognize me and who come up to me and say, are you Larry Bassett? Are you the pacifist? And they talk to me. And it's a small town. So, you know, I'm kind of a known quantity here now. (laughs) Recognizable by your beard. Recognizable by my beard. And, you know, I've had a beard for quite a long time, but it's always been a fairly presentable beard. But now it's a kind of a long, straggly, Gandalf kind of beard. I saw a sign, and it had your picture with comment to the effect of that every time they significantly reduce U.S. military spending, you cut your beard. And clearly that's a beard that hasn't been touched for a while. Yeah, I have no fear of being forced into cutting my beard, I, I regret to say. And so, Larry, what were you doing back on tax day 2019? This was a very strange tax day for me because I go back to the days I first was involved with tax resistance in the 1970s. And that was still, you know, where people lined up at the post office in their cars to mail in their returns at midnight on April 15th. And so, you know, it was kind of where all of us anti-military spending people would show up with our leaflets, like these people filing their tax returns were going to be interested in that. So tax day was kind of an event. And in some places, you know, they started to have like bands and music and crowds of people at the post office. So this tax day, and since a lot of people file online now, you know, there isn't this midnight frenzy anymore. The movie that we made, which includes my war tax resistance story, which is titled The Pacifist, came out on Amazon on March 11th. I've been pretty focused on that, and I had already filed my taxes for this year electronically. And so April 15th was kind of a strange day. 
I was more focused on the film than I was on tax day. This is also the third year, the final year, where I have a big tax liability. My father died in 2016. He left me a million dollars, and it was taxable. Everybody thinks, you know, inheritances aren't taxable. Not true. The money that he left me was in annuities and other forms where as soon as I withdrew the money, it was taxable and it was taxable to me. A good share of the money he directed in his will that I should give to relatives and other special people that he wanted to remember. But he directed that they should get the money without having to pay a tax on it. And since it was taxable money, that meant I was going to have to pay the tax on it. And he knew that. And he knew that I was a war tax resistor, and he knew that I was not going to pay that tax. So I ended up owing taxes on a million dollars. And because of how I got the money out, that was spread over three years. And so I ended up owing about a quarter of a million dollars that I didn't pay. So that was a little bit on my mind. And, you know, I figured, you know, at least when I started out, I figured this was going to get the attention of the IRS. I mean, I didn't figure that owing a quarter of a million dollars was the biggest amount that anybody would owe. I knew that wasn't the truth, but thought it would get their attention. And in fact, it hasn't. They've sent me the routine letters. I've been resisting taxes in much, much smaller amounts for a while. And I know what their routine is. We remember the days in the 1970s and 1980s, people would claim war tax deductions, which would then lower their income. And if somebody was a war tax resistor and claimed a war tax deduction to make their income not taxable or a lower tax, the IRS process required them to have an audit. They had to audit your taxes and you would have an opportunity to talk to a real person about why you were doing this. And of course, they didn't allow the deduction because it wasn't a legal deduction. So they would say, now you owe this money. But you had the opportunity to actually talk with a person. Now, of course, if you did that, there would be big penalties and and big issues. They figured out they weren't going to let people play that game with them. So, you know, they make rules. So, you know, we would go into the IRS and we would carry our signs and we would bring our friends. And the IRS would say, You can't do this. You can't come in with your signs. And so we would go to the ACLU. We would say to the ACLU, you know, freedom of speech. We want to be able to go into the IRS with our don't pay for war signs. And the ACLU, this was in Smithtown, New York, on Long Island, would call up the IRS and say, you can't stop people from coming in with their signs. So the IRS would say, okay, you can come in with your sign. And we would come in. And we would talk to people. And the person that I talked to for several years in a row when I did this was a guy named Mr. Gubin. Mr. Gubin, the first time we met him, said, I came here from Russia and it's a whole lot better here than there. And you shouldn't be doing this. Well, by the third time I met Mr. Gubin, as I was leaving, I was being taken into court because I wasn't cooperating. The last words that Mr. Gubin said to me, who I had got to know as as a real person, who had told me about how he had been to see Martin Luther King speak, and, you know, we had shared stories. He said, I'm rooting for you. This was an IRS agent. That was important to us because we felt like we were communicating with people. You don't get to do that very much these days because it's all faceless, nameless people and just letters. And you get letters. 
And when you don't pay, they send you a letter that says, you know, you forgot to send in your money. Some people respond to that. I don't because it's just a form letter. There's nobody to respond to someplace in Kansas City. And then a month later, you get another letter. And a month later, you get another letter. And a month later, you get a letter that says they're going to put a lien on your Social Security number, which means that they can seize property, which they can do very easily. I mean, to get a lien, then you just sort of wait to see what are they going to do. And of course, along the way, they're issuing penalties and interest for not paying. I think the first year I owed $128,000. That was the first year of my, what I call, massive resistance. When they start charging like 5% a month for three or four months for paying late, and then some kind of standard interest rate, not a high interest rate, but 4 or 5%, when it's for $100,000, it mounts up. Anyway, so now I'm, I've had three years where I've owed them quite a lot of money, and they have assessed quite a lot of penalties, and I'm kind of waiting for them to tell me, so, you know, what's their bottom line total, but it's probably around $300,000 now. They're not going to get $300,000 from me. They have 10 years to get it. The only thing that I own is a probably $6,000 car and probably a $150,000 condominium which is my loft in downtown Lynchburg. They could seize my house, I suppose. They have done that in the past for war tax resistors. There was a couple quite a long time ago, 25 years ago, I think, in Coleraine, Massachusetts, Randy Keeler and Betsy Corner, who didn't pay taxes. The IRS seized their house. It was like a four-year process with people up there living in their house, camping in their yard, having community activities around that event. And actually, there was a film made of that. I think the film is called An Act of Conscience, the story of Randy and Betsy. But, you know, I don't think since then, that's 25 years ago, a big mistake for the IRS because the IRS doesn't look very good when they're chasing after people and giving them a hard time who are just trying to do the moral thing from our point of view. You know, we're trying to do something about war and killing people. So they don't look very good when they chase after good people. When they go after crooks and thieves, well, so be it. But I'm waiting. I'm, I'm kind of waiting. My poking the bear at this point is this film called The Pacifist. And I hope that people will look at it. And I hope the IRS will look at it. And I hope that my representatives in Congress will look at it and will read my letters. I do this all very openly, very publicly. I'm here waiting for them. I think the end of the film, it shows my home address on the screen, and it says, Larry's waiting for the IRS. And folks, a link to The Pacifist. You can get it via Amazon, download it, listen to it. It's on the nordenspiritradio.org website. I'll have a couple other links relative to Larry Bassett on the website as well. And maybe I'll even give you a link up there to An Act of Conscience, the movie that Larry just mentioned. Uh, Larry, again, one of the things that happened is the IRS called you in back in the 80s. You kept fighting him. You said, no, I'm not going to help out on this. I'm not going to be complicit in the murder that this money is paying for. Eventually, you got a court case in your favor, the Fifth Amendment. Yeah, it was pretty amazing. Actually, I was working for the, it was at that time in, in the 1980s, it was a new organization. The organization is nwtrcc.org. 
It's the National War Tax Resistance Coordinating Committee, which was formed in 1982 by a number of peace organizations that were interested in trying to coordinate war tax resistance organizing in the country. I was one of the early staff people for NWTRCC. The only conclusion that I can draw is that they targeted me. I certainly didn't owe very much money for what they did. What they did was they took me to, well, first, you know, I went into the Smithtown IRS for their audits and talked with Mr. Gubin for a couple of years, and I owed something less than $3,000. That was including penalties and interest. And they asked me to come in, and they asked me to tell them where my assets were, where my money was, so that they could seize it. And I said, why would I tell you that? So I didn't tell them. And then, for whatever reasons, which, you know, of course, they never tell you, they decided to take me to federal court. I got a subpoena to go to the federal district court in Brooklyn, and I went into that hearing. Of course, in the meantime, here I am. I'm a war tax organizer, so, you know, I let people know. I let everybody know this was happening. And about 20 people showed up with me to this hearing. I was figuring I was going to go to jail because I wasn't going to cooperate. We got lucky. We got a really good judge. His name was Weinstein. He was a fairly progressive federal judge. The amazing thing is he is still, in 2019, a federal district judge. He's 96 years old, and he's still on the bench. This president that was set in 1985, and this was based on the Fifth Amendment, not the amendment that we would have liked them to rule on. We made arguments about lots of other issues. But the judge ruled pretty quickly, actually, that because you having assets was part of a criminal action, you didn't have to provide that information because it was, would be part of what would be used against you in a criminal action. And basically, the judge said, the IRS has plenty of ways to get this information. They don't have to ask you personally. So he said, you don't have to give it to them. Of course, I didn't. And they never collected. So, you know, they have collected occasionally. They take 10% of my Social Security every month currently, which isn't very much about $70 a month. So you figure $70 into 300000 How long will that be? Well, it'll be a while. I won't figure it out. But, um, they're not going to get $300,000 from me. You should live so long. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, I plan to. My parents lived until their 90s, and I'm 72. So I figure I got another 20 years. I haven't seen the whole movie, The Pacifist, all about your experience. How did you become a pacifist? Why are you a pacifist? Because I'm sure there's a lot of listeners to this Spirit in Action program who maybe don't like war, but they wouldn't call themselves a pacifist. You know, I'm not an intellectual pacifist. It's not like I have studied pacifism, and I certainly wasn't brought up to be a pacifist. The Sunday school I went to you know, was in a Missouri Synod Lutheran church, which is pretty hard nails kind of a place. And I went through confirmation and I got to the end of confirmation. And, you know, I said to my dad, expecting he would explode. I said, Dad, I'm, I'm not going to sign up. I did it, but I'm not going to join. And he and my mom talked and said, okay, that's up to you. When I was in college, I looked around, went to a lot of different churches, was kind of searching. But being a pacifist, 
I became involved in my 20s with the War Resisters League, and that was the first time I ever heard about something that was called being a pacifist and nonviolence. And of course, Martin Luther King was fairly prominent during much of that time, so nonviolence was part of my life. But the film got to be called The Pacifist because a couple of years ago, a local newspaper writer interviewed me. I do try to be public, so I had called up the newspaper and said, hey, this is what I'm doing about not paying for war, and would you be interested in covering it? And they sent out a reporter and took a picture, and I think his article, he told me he was really excited because he said he'd been waiting for a story where he could talk about Arlo Guthrie's Alice's Restaurant. The article was as much about Alice's Restaurant as it was about my war tax resistance. But anyway, he wrote this article, and I think the title of the article, it said something about local man adopts pacifist lifestyle. Well, I got a lot of ribbing from other people in the peace movement. Pacifist lifestyle. What's that? Well, you know, I didn't know, but that's what he wrote. And then somebody locally who made films saw the article in the paper, and Alex called me up and said, hey, I just finished making a documentary, and I was looking for my next documentary, and let's talk. So Alex and I talked, and The Pacifist, two years later, was the conclusion of that conversation. He named it The Pacifist because of that newspaper article. So, yeah, of all the labels I put on myself, I might call myself a curmudgeon before I call myself a pacifist. But when you have a movie called The Pacifist and it's about you, you kind of got to live with it. So that's what I'm doing. I'll buy that loaf of bread. And if you want to say I'm really not a very good pacifist or whatever you want to say. I'm probably not going to argue with you about it. I noticed another thing, Larry, and by the way, folks, we are speaking with Larry Bassett, who is the subject of a new movie. I've got a link to it. You can find it on Amazon Prime, The Pacifist, produced by Alex Zort. I have a link to it on NordenSpiritRadio.org, but he's the subject of the movie. The movie is The Pacifist, and it's uh, the story of the number one war tax resistor in U.S. history. Isn't that an amazing (laughs) title, huh? It is an amazing title, and it does definitely get me a little blowback from people. They say, you know, because war tax resistors mostly are not record keepers. We've been talking about that there are 10,000 war tax resistors in the United States, as long as I can remember. It's not a number you can really count. We don't have a census. Some people will remember a woman named Julia Butterfly Hill. Well, Julia climbed up in a redwood tree in California quite a few years ago and stayed up there two years. Through some events in her life, she sued somebody because they used her image for some commercial purpose. Some capitalist company that annoyed her made money off of her picture sitting up in the tree. And she sued them, and she won a bunch of money. As a result of that, she owed, I believe, $150,000, which she refused to pay. So she was, at that point, the highest single-year war tax resistor that we knew about. You know, she sort of got labeled that. Well, 
Alex, who's kind of more a regular guy than an oddball peacenik, said, okay, so now you're the number one guy in cumulative amount because you have resisted a quarter of a million dollars over more than one year. So he decided that it was of some marketing value for me to be the number one war tax resistor. So I don't know if it's going to be in the Guinness Book of World Records, but I do know a couple of people have said, so what's this thing, Larry? Why are you like being proud of being number one? It's kind of not a peace movement thing to do. Stand around yelling, we're number one, we're number one. <laughs> we're number one, right. So in fact, and it may, of course it may not be true, and of course there's lots of qualifications because I have the most cumulative amount of money resisted, possibly, but of people who are open, conscientious war tax resistors. Certainly, people who have not filed for lots of years might owe more than that. We don't really know. So it's kind of like being a pacifist. Okay, if you want to call me a pacifist, I'll be a pacifist. If you want to call me number one war tax resistor, I'll be number one war tax resistor. But I don't wake up in the morning thinking, wow, I'm the number one war tax resistor pacifist in the world. <laughs> well, good. I'm glad you're not trying to outcompete everybody in that way. Yeah, if somebody wants to exceed me, I'm all for it. Because I do wonder, you know, I, I mean, people who are war tax resistors scratch their heads all the time and say, why don't more people do this? I don't know the answer to that. A lot of people think it's because people are scared to death of the IRS, but I think I'm the living example of don't need to be afraid of the IRS because they're a paper tiger. I feel kind of bad because, you know, you hear about, you know, they're underfunded, understaffed, feel kind of like I'm picking on them. The guy down in the IRS office in Lynchburg, he certainly doesn't want to see me coming in the office. You want to talk about your taxes? No, I just wanted to chat. No, get out of here. He's not a friendly guy. <laughs> He's not my replacement for Gerald Gubin from the 1980s. There's one thing. I just, you know, not too long ago, after he wrote a best-selling book, Bernie Sanders became a millionaire. <laughs> And I saw a town hall that Fox News held. So, you know, I didn't figure Fox News was going to be generous to Bernie, but they were ragging on him, really trying to get him under their thumb that now that you're a millionaire, don't you think you should voluntarily pay all these taxes that you want to change the laws so that we support things like public education and the good of the people? Would you have any trouble paying federal taxes if only 5% of it went to the military? Oh, absolutely not. No. And I do pay all my other taxes. And one of the things that I'm sort of well known for locally is that I have been talking for the years that I've lived here that instead of every year for the city of Lynchburg talking about where they have to cut the budget and not being able to pay city employees a living wage, I say, so raise my property taxes. You know, that hasn't won me a lot of favor, but, you know, I'm not anti-tax. Absolutely not anti-tax. I don't know how much they would have to lower the military spending before I would be willing to pay federal taxes. And, of course, some people who resist just refuse to pay the part that would go to the military, which has been between 40 and 55 percent for forever. I figure whatever I pay, half of it's going to go to the military, so I refuse to pay any of it. They do collect from me. I don't believe that my not paying even a quarter of a million dollars, I mean, that's not even a whole missile. What I do know 
is that my redirection of that money, my giving away the money, because I don't keep the money that I don't pay, I give it away to good causes, has made a difference. And certainly my ability in the last three years to donate probably close to $300,000 all around the world has made a difference for people. And my first resistance back in the 1970s kind of affirmed that for me. One year in the 1970s, I didn't pay $300 in federal income taxes. I heard of a summer feeding program out in the mountains of Virginia. And the food they were going to get through the government, but they didn't have any money to buy forks and plates and serving things. So I gave them my $300 and they could have the summer feeding program. That was my first experience of actually redirecting money. Incredibly positive experience because part of that story is that in that period of months where that was going on, I had an occasion to tell the story to 50 or 100 people gathered together someplace in Blacksburg, Virginia, which is where Virginia Tech is. And I stood up and got to tell my little story about not paying the federal government $300 and giving the money to this summer feeding program. And people stood up and applauded me. Wow, I thought, this is okay. So that was my first experience, and that continues to feel like where the benefit has been. The benefit has not been on keeping money from the military because, of course, it doesn't. But you can give it to places that are making a better world. Thanks to you, Larry Bassett, for your long-term witness about war tax resistance, your commitment to just looking at what you're willing to morally participate in or not participate in. I think the decision towards war tax resistance is just a necessary one for those of us who examine our inner landscape and find out that I'm not that person to enable killing. And so I want to congratulate you for both standing at the front so that back in the 1980s, you were able to get a decision about the Fifth Amendment that made it possible for people of conscience to not aid the IRS in taking their money for war. And more recently, and becoming the most notorious, the number one <laughs> war tax resistor in all U.S. history. I would like, I would gladly accept the label of most notorious. <laughs> I'm going to write that on my list of things. Cantankerous, notorious, curmudgeon, geezer. You know, I'm, I'm an old cranky guy who doesn't want to give money to the military, even though in my state, which is very proud of having two Democratic senators, which is pretty amazing for people who have lived in Virginia a long time. But, you know, I think they both voted for the $700 billion for Mr. Trump's military. That distresses me. The main point is, Larry, I want to thank you for your long-term witness, for your fighting for the rights of people, and mainly just fighting for the right not to contribute to human suffering. Thank you for doing that and for joining me today for Spirit in Action. Thank you for listening to me, everybody. Thanks. What a rich day for me, speaking with Larry Bassett in Lynchburg, Virginia, and before that with Ann Barron of San Diego, and last week with Sue Barnard of Eugene, Oregon, and great thanks to Lincoln Rice, staff of the National War Tax Resistance Coordinating Committee, working out of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, who connected me up with all of these folks. Next week, we'll have guest host Peterson Toscano behind the microphone. But special thanks this week to Andrew Jansen for production assistance. We'll see you all next week for Spirit in Action.
The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. Oh